Hey, welcome to an episode of Things Survivors Wish You Knew. You're listening to the Dressember Podcast, a show about advocating for the dignity of all people. In this series, we're talking with 11 survivors of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation to find out what survivors wish we knew. We're your hosts, Blythe Hill and Stephanie Schindler. In this episode, we have the privilege of talking with Hannah Blair. Hannah combines her experience as a survivor of sex trafficking with her education and professional abilities to advance the fight against sexual exploitation. We'll discuss survivors' aftercare, preventing re-victimization, and what survivor leadership means and how to avoid re-traumatizing survivors, even with good intentions. Hannah collaborated with Homeland Security to train law enforcement, served as a survivor consultant with the nationally acclaimed Polaris Project, and received the Ellie Wiesel National Prize in Ethics. As a graduate student, her research was recently showcased at the Himalayan Policy Research Conference and is used to develop survivor leadership training. She works for multiple anti-trafficking organizations all over the country and has spoken at events and churches throughout Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, and Florida. She's a member of the National Survivor Alliance, the Global Association of Human Trafficking Scholars, and the Fellowship of Extraordinary Women. She continues to offer her expertise to develop training for survivor leadership and better serve survivors as they do the hard work of healing from complex post-traumatic stress disorders. Without further ado. Are you looking for more connection and support within the Dressember community? You should consider leading a team for the 10th annual Dressember Style Challenge. It's going to be a special year, and we're hoping to make our biggest impact yet. Create your team at dressember.org slash fundraise. We have all the resources you need to be a part of changing the world, one dresser tie at a time. Hannah, it's so great to have you here. Um, you know, at Dressember, we are so Team Hannah. <laughs> it's been a joy to work with you many times, and you were actually um, a featured guest on the webinar that inspired our podcast. Um, uh, yourself, Sid Lolly, and Sean were incredible, insightful guests on the original Thing Survivors Wish You Knew webinar that took place uh, this past January in uh, 2022. So thanks for returning for some more wisdom. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So Today, we're going to be talking about something that has been an ongoing conversation uh, with you and our organization, which is preventing re-victimization. And I know that you have shared that um, sharing your lived experiences has been a really empowering and educational experience for you, and that like you can help educate other folks about how to prevent re-victimization. Uh, by sharing your story. So I'd love to know um, as we begin, if there's any insights from your lived experience uh, that you would want to share to inform our conversation about the risks of re-victimization and how to prevent it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think trafficking in and of itself is already misunderstood. And so then when you bring the topic of recidivism to the table, I don't think people know what to do with it. 
Um, I've experienced that personally um, as someone who did um, when I left my trafficker the very first time as a way to support myself financially, I did work as an escort. And then, you know, four years passed, I did the work, I did the healing, went back to school, you know, did all the things that you're supposed to do to prevent revictimization and still kind of fell into that again with my trafficker coming back into my life. And so I've had people just kind of reach out to me on social media or even personal friends and be like, how did that happen? Like you give trainings on recidivism, you give trainings on trauma bonding. How did that happen? And so I think there needs to be a greater discussion on, you know, what makes survivors um, more vulnerable to recidivism and also a very real desperation for survival, because that's kind of what it boils down to recidivism. And um, yeah, so I think as far as like from my personal experience, that's what I have gone through with different people in my life. Yeah, I think it can be a bit frustrating and difficult for folks to put this burden on you and say, we know that we know you know what you're doing. So why are you doing it? It's like, well, if I didn't have to do it, do you think that I would do it? And do you think I'm up for this conversation <laughs> where um, like some of that blame um, or burdenhood is being putting on you is being put on you? So I, I think that can be a really difficult spot to be in. And I'd love if you could share what factors put survivors at risk of revictimization? Because there is such an unknowing around this topic. Yes. And I think the bottom line when it comes to recidivism is people need to realize that freedom is more than just an absence of trafficking. So um, I quote this research all the time. I think it was a, about 500 women, maybe a few less than that. Um, but there was an interview, a research project where they interviewed about 500 women who were still in the commercial sex trade. And 92% of those women said that they wanted to leave, but they had no other option. Like they, you know, there were no other treatment services. There was a big lack of alternatives. And so I think we, especially people in the anti-trafficking field need to come to this realization that the same process that we use to restore survivors and to walk with survivors in their healing is the same process that traffickers use to manipulate, to, you know, um, create that trauma bond, the same process to get women into the commercial sex industry and into trafficking. And I talk a lot in some of my trainings that I do about um, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you know, essentially that's kind of, you know, how we walk with survivors into that place of restoration. You know, you've got your physical needs, you've got your psychological needs, you've got your physiological needs. And that again is the same way traffickers rope their or victims into trafficking. So, you know, we can provide food, you know, we can provide clothing, we can provide housing, we can provide all these different things, but so can a trafficker. And so it becomes more than just providing basic needs and it becomes about after the aftercare. It becomes about the longevity of walking with survivors in their healing journey. And so factors, you know, you've got um, sustainable, sustainable income, um, employment, you've got the trauma bond, you've got therapy, you've got so many different things at play because ultimately 
recidivism and reentry into the commercial sex industry happens at the intersection of vulnerabilities. And so the same vulnerabilities that cause women to go into or get roped into trafficking are the same things that keep them going back. And so that's what it is, is relapse happens when survivors continue to have unmet needs post-exploitation. Yeah. I think, I think you're really hitting on something here and especially, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering like, okay, you said after the aftercare and the, so the aftercare piece is something the anti-trafficking space kind of prides themselves in is like providing therapy. And hopefully the, the goal is to kind of break those trauma bonds and get you to a place or get a survivor to a place where they can stand alone emotionally or have that like emotional psychological freedom, but without some of those other pieces like economic opportunity, financial stability, and probably a number of other components that come after aftercare. Like, I'm just, I'm curious, can we talk more about like what you've seen happen to survivors who maybe go through a program, maybe a fantastic aftercare program. And then because they don't have the support after that, or because they're expected to not come back for more support where kind of that breakdown is? Yeah, for sure. Um, I honestly think it boils down to survivor empowerment. What are programs and aftercare provisions doing to ensure that when survivors leave your program, that they are self-sustaining, that they are self-supporting? My personal experience and experiences from other survivors that I know, it's almost like, okay, we do the work, we walk through the program, congratulations, go back into society, like they wipe their hands, we've done our part. And support services can't end after the program, like they need to extend back to that. Mm. And we talk a lot in the anti-trafficking circle about the, you know, the term rescue. And I counter that with It's not a rescue if you're not ensuring a survivor's financial stability, either providing them with or helping them find safe housing. You know, are you helping them find sustainable employment? Are you providing goal planning services so that they can see, yeah, you know what? I have a future and I can make that future on my own. I don't have to rely on a program. I don't have to rely, if that makes sense, on these aftercare provisions. And a lot of Aftercare provisions, I also think, are really rooted in crisis management, Mm. which is very important. Don't get me wrong. You know, a survivor cannot receive these restorative treatments if they're not at a place of stability, but it can't stop there. And I think that's where a lot of people are getting caught up is how long are we supposed to do this? And the thing is a lifetime, like, (laughs) you know, the long-term trauma care, that's what we need to be investing in. Um, The community support, the, just all of that. I think all of that intermeshes, you know, you can't have sustainable employment a lot of times without education. You know, a lot of survivors, they either didn't graduate from high school or like me, I met my trafficker in college. And so when I left him, I didn't have a college degree. Mm-hmm. And these days it's really, really hard to support yourself without higher education. So what are we doing to partner with these survivors past aftercare, past a residential program, past crisis management? Um, because honestly, I think the precision and the depth of care offered to survivors is the number one factor on whether or not they're going to continue on their healing journey or if they're going to go back to the trafficking situation that they came from. So, yeah. You know, it makes me think of, um, there are a lot of anti-trafficking programs that have like a graduation 
And the the philosophy behind that is like, congratulations, you've made it, like you've completed your restoration journey versus what I'm hearing you say, uh, which is, I mean, really a more like trauma-informed approach of like how capital T trauma, complex trauma becomes part of you and becomes a like something you then have to deal with and kind of manage your whole life. And then an organization seeing their responsibility in this space to walk alongside you for the long haul. And if they're not providing direct services in the sustained liberation empowerment sense, connecting you with the resources that are going to help. And when I say you, obviously, I mean, I hope you know, I mean like all survivors or any person, capital Y, you, um, like beyond crisis management, like you said. And um, I'm curious, I mean, you've already kind of touched on it, but what do you think is necessary for preventing re-victimization or re-recidivism, um, what would be the the key components that you see as like really closing the gaps? You know, I mentioned this earlier, but financial stability and economic empowerment. And again, this goes past, you know, making sure survivors are bringing in enough money, which that's important, sustainable income. But then you have things like financial liter- literacy programs, you know, you, debt management, how to create a budget, um, credit building. Mm. I, when I left my trafficker, I had no idea what credit was. No idea. I was flabbergasted to say the least to realize that I had to have credit to do adult things and reintegrate into society. Um, and so, and I think this also boils down to, for example, let's just say a survivor leaves the life, right? She goes and applies for EBT, for welfare, for government assistance. And, you know, she's excited. You know, she's on the path. She's going to get assistance. She's going to step into her restorative journey. She goes, you know, to the welfare office, waits in this super long line, which is really triggering. And she gets to the window and the lady says, where's your birth certificate? Oh, where's your ID? Like she doesn't, she doesn't have it because her trafficker took it. So now she has to go through the long process of trying to get these documents because she doesn't have to have them. And, you know, this is, this is a long process, weeks, months. And so by that point, she's been living out of her car because, you know, getting an apartment, you've got security deposit, you've got first month's rent, you've got all the fees to cut the utilities on and she didn't have that money. So her documents come back in and she goes back to the welfare office. And honestly, I think sometimes the bureaucracy of it all kind of inflates <laughs> um, survivors to the point where they just don't want to do it anymore. Kind of like going to the DMV and, you know, whatever. So that happens. And so by the time, you know, she gets back to the welfare office, she's deflated. She's knocked down. She doesn't want to do it anymore. And so she puts in her application and then again learns that it could take up to a month for approval for these food stamps, for her rental assistance. And she can't wait that long. So she goes back to the game. So it's all Mm -hmm. of these things that she's not able to give financial assistance. She's not able to get financial stability. And as an anti-trafficking advocate, these are the places where we need to step up, where we need to bear this weight for survivors so they Mm -hmm. don't have to bear it on their own. And so, and I also think that ties into with criminal record relief. You honestly, these days, it's really hard to get an apartment. It's really hard finding safe housing. It's really hard finding a job with a felony on your record, with a criminal record of any kind. And so I also think that plays into it. And then also, again, education. Education plays into that. Um, job training, you know, uh, career development. I think the corporate community really needs to step up when it comes to um, the fight to end human trafficking. You know, you've got these corporate allies who can teach them 
basic computer skills, resume building, interview etiquette. I had no idea what to wear to a job interview because I had never gone to one. So I had to have someone step up and help me with that. And I don't think I would have secured the job without that. Um, I also think a lot of aftercare provisions are missing the aspect of life skills, like basic, basic life skills. I have a survivor friend who was trafficked from a child. And when she finally moved out on her own and was able to escape that, she didn't know how to do laundry. She didn't know how to do laundry. Things like coping skills. I had no coping skills. So even when I went back to college, if I would not have known like, hey, I can get accommodations as a student struggling with complex PTSD, I would have flunked out. Um, I know a survivor who she would pay every day $20 for an Uber so she could Uber to work. She could afford a car, but she couldn't get her license. Why couldn't she get her license? Mm. Because she couldn't pass the eye test. Why did she not get glasses? Because she didn't know she could get glasses. These are things that a lot of survivors don't know. Things like cooking, things like um, going to the bank, going to the grocery store, things that you and I, now we do every day. Some survivors don't know that they can do that. Um, We mentioned, you mentioned therapy earlier, and I think it needs to go past that. Um, I think survivors require a very unique trauma therapy, Um, you know, People are still researching complex trauma, but in my research and my reading, one thing that psychologists do know is that standard therapy does not meet the needs of survivors and a lot of times ends up re-traumatizing them. Mm. And therapy is so, so important because therapy is required. It's a requirement to break that trauma bond, to break that trauma bond that keeps survivors going back, that keeps them attached to their trafficker. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I also think a support system is really important. Um, which, I mean, that's for obvious reasons, but survivors go from living in seclusion and isolation and their emotional dependency is on their trafficker, their absence of connection. We're not wired to live alone. We're wired for community. And I would even go so far as to say the survivor community to have someone sit across from you and say, Hey, you know what? I know what you're going through because I was there. It's very validating and it's very healing. And a lot of trauma incurred in trafficking is relational, but on the flip side of that, a lot of healing is relational as well. So Wow. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you so much for breaking it down so much for us. Cause I think I, I really, I mean, when I was asking you, I knew I was asking you the same question phrased differently, but I, I knew that there was more that you have to say on it. (laughs) And I know, I mean, the, one of the issues is so many people are passionate about this, about, about anti-trafficking and, um, and want to make a positive impact, but we're so disconnected from what the actual needs are. And so disconnected actually from, like you said, all the things we take for granted that are actually like really core factors in a person thriving or flailing, you know, or um, being self-sufficient. And so thank you for kind of breaking down in a very practical sense, like, like what we take for granted as basic skills and and core competencies, you know, for, to use like jargon, but that was really helpful. For sure. Um, vulnerability is a pre-trafficking characteristic. Like there's no, there's no other way to put it. The more vulnerable you are, the more powerful, powerful traffickers become because Mm -hmm. essentially the bottom line is traffickers give their victims what they're missing. Right. And again, trafficking a lot of times 
comes down to survival. It comes down to, you know, we, we want to think about trafficking being black and white. We want to think about it being kidnapped kids and kids chained to beds and basements. And that's not what it is. Um, for the most part, you know, we know the statistics, we know it happens, but for the most part, it's giving them what they're missing. It's giving them love. It's giving them self-esteem. It's giving them a sense of belonging. It's giving them a place to live. So they're not sleeping on a cardboard box on the street. It's giving them food. It's giving them all the things that they need to survive. And so that's kind of what it boils down to. So how can we meet those needs in a better, more sustainable way than they're being offered to be met by those traffickers? Yeah. And I I hear you when you say that trafficking is a relational trauma. It's a relational wound. And healing comes through community and through one-on-one support as well. And it's difficult to come against the fact that often anti-trafficking organizations, whether or not they mean to do this, I'm sure they don't mean to do this because the heart is to, you know, help folks heal, is that they end up having really transactional interactions. And that is not aligned with, you know, relational healing. And I'm wondering if you can give us some insight on how anti-trafficking organizations Mm. can be more complex trauma-informed, how they can help avoid re-victimization, how they can avoid re-exploiting survivors um, through transactional services. Um, I'm just... That, that's a lot of what I'm hearing you say, that there are times when, whether or not this is on purpose, survivors can feel like re-exploited in these bureaucratic systems <laughs> where you're coming across barrier after barrier to get what you need, or someone thinks that they're helping you and really it's just surface level. So how can we hold anti-trafficking organizations accountable to be more complex trauma-informed and to put the burden back on themselves, back on ourselves, so that the survivors are just receiving the support that they need, not having to do the heavy lifting alongside these organizations that are trying to help. I like how you said the thing about, you know, whether they have a good heart, you know, the good intentions, because I am a firm believer that good intentions are not enough, specifically within the anti-trafficking field, because you have intent and you have impact. And I also like how you mentioned um, about aftercare services being transactional. And I think that's such a big deal because oftentimes a survivor's trafficking situation begins when they're offered a place to stay or food in exchange for their loyalty. And so this translates over to these aftercare services by services need to be leverage free. They need to be based on the principle of freedom. And my personal experience, I have seen, I've had support services pulled because I was not healing the way that they thought that I should heal. And, you know, there's, 
there's no dramatic escape from trafficking. You know, there are no clear and easy ways out. There's no easy exit. There's no, okay, you do this and there you go. That's it. And so these barriers that survivors are encountering, um, they can be broken by the understanding that it's never a survivor's fault for being trafficked. And by providing this non-judgmental, I think that very key, non-judgmental support. And I also think that what's missing in a lot of anti-trafficking advocates and anti-trafficking organizations is what I like to call active waiting. And so what it is, is Mm. remaining consistent and engaged with victims while they're still in the game and letting them decide when they're ready to take the first steps out of the game, because a lot of people will be like, oh, they're not ready. OK, well, we'll you know, we're here if you want us like you, we're not going to hang around. We're not we're not going to support you in this lifestyle. And the act of leaving trafficking is very hard. It's very difficult. And I think people discount that. I think people discount what it takes to leave sexual exploitation. I really, truly do. And so <clears throat> I think in order for. um, to call organizations to that level of accountability is speaking out, doing just like we're doing right now, because I went into a program, a residential program last year, and it was a very traumatic experience. Um, They said they were trauma-informed, but from the things that occurred, I do not believe they actually were. And a few months later, after I had left this program, I got to talk with a trafficking advocate who had worked with this organization at a certain level. And she's like, yeah, you know, I could have told you, I could have told you something like that was going to happen. I could have told you, hey, if you want to do this program, that's fine, but hear me out. And this is my experience. And I was like, why didn't you tell me? Like, (laughs) why didn't you tell me? And so I have found that when survivors speak out about their experiences, we get shut down, we get discounted, we get, oh, well, you know, you can't please everybody Mm. or, which is true. But when you have several survivors speaking out about the same experiences, it's time to listen because I don't ever want to discount someone's seat at the table. I don't ever want to say, oh, you're not a survivor. Like you don't belong in this movement, but it's about survivors. It's about the survivors. It's about walking with them. It's about listening to them. It's about hearing their insight and their perspective because advocates matter. Anti-trafficking organizations matter. I mean, they make the anti-trafficking movement. But the truth is you can read all the books. You can do all the research. You could talk to every survivor under the sun. But until you have walked through trafficking, until you have been raped every night by multiple different men, until you experience the effects of the trauma bond, until you have gone through sexual exploitation, you will never truly know what it takes to get out of it. And so the bottom line for holding or holding organizations accountable and calling them to a higher standard boils down to survivor leadership. I mean, that's just, mm-hmm. that's just how it is. Survivor leadership. Are you listening to survivors? Are you employing survivors? Are you getting their feedback on your program practices and policies? Do you have survivors on your board? And that is what's going to make the difference in organizations and advocates who cause more trauma and re-exploit survivors and those who help them step up and rise to the potential that's already there. If you want to make an impact with Dressember but aren't ready to commit to wearing a dress or tie for a month, you can still fight the devastating issue of human trafficking. 
Make a one-time donation to help support prevention work, interventions, and survivor empowerment worldwide. Join the movement by donating today at dressember.org slash donate. Yeah, as you were talking, I, I felt it kind of growing to that point of like, yeah, it's all about putting survivors in position of leadership, in positions of power, decision-making positions, and at, at bare minimum, responding to the survivors in your program who are pointing out flaws or pain points. Um, and this is a theme that kind of keeps coming up, unsurprisingly, in this series <laughs> uh, um, where we're talking to survivors is just how critical it is that we in the space continue moving towards survivor leadership models and putting um, putting survivors in these positions and employing survivors and really allowing, I mean, ultimately stepping aside and allowing survivors who want to lead to take those positions and and lead the charge, lead the movement. And I'm optimistic. Um, I hope you are too. I don't know. How do you feel about kind of where things are going in that regard? Um, I think we've done well, um, slowly shifting the mic, passing the mic to survivors, but I think there's so much more to be done. Um, I think there are so many different ways to pass the mic and include survivor voices and not just include survivor voices, but elevate them. Mm -hmm. And I also think that there is a very, very fine line between, having a survivor informing your practices and re-exploitation. Like we have to be really careful that our inclusion of survivor leaders is not tokenistic. It's not re-exploiting them. It's not exchanging their story and on the basis of, okay, I'm an anti-trafficking organization. We're going to have the survivor speak because look what we did look what we did. This is our success story. And that gets under my skin because I sit here and I've had incredible advocates. I've had some really bad ones, (laughs) but I've had Mm. some incredible advocates. I've had some incredible support, but when it comes down to it, I did it. I did the work. I pulled myself up. I put myself through college as a single mom. I did the EMDR, the trauma therapy, the support groups, the medication. I did that. Yes, you supported me and you walked me through it. And I'm so, so grateful for the people who have come behind me and warred with me, but I did it. Like you don't get to take credit for what I did. And I think that also is a big thing when it comes to survivor leadership is giving them that agency in their healing. Like you can provide support, you can be there, you can help us get on our feet. But when it comes down to it, we're the ones wrestling with the damages left behind. Mm. We're the ones having to do the hard work. And so I think giving more credit to survivors. And I also think realizing and elevating our voices in such a way where we're not a statistic. Like we're more than our story. I'm a person. <laughs> I'm a mom. I'm a student. Yes, I'm an advocate. Yes, I'm a survivor. But I, I, I'm more than that. I like to knit. I like to binge watch Netflix. <laughs> I, I, I like to write. I'm a writer. Like I'm more than my story. And so when you have, for example, in the past, I have had a church come back and tell me they initially had invited me to speak 
And they came back and decided that my story was not graphic or exciting enough. And so when you're hiring survivors to speak at events and your sole focus is their story and you want them to share graphic details of their trauma because, you know, it gets people to donate more or whatever, like that's, that's re-traumatizing and it's not okay. And so getting to the point where we're respecting survivors and we're respecting their stories, I think is going to be the next big step to survivor inclusion. Well, I'm so sorry that happened. I mean, that makes me feel that's like, I'm, that makes me really angry and just like outraged on your behalf. That's a really gross feeling that, yeah, that you were told that or put in that position. Um, But it, all of what you're saying also I mean, yeah, Steph and I are over here like snapping, like could not agree more. Like it, people underestimate the strength of survivors. And like you said, the, the, the power, the inner power that it takes to leave a situation where there's so many intersecting vulnerabilities that you described earlier, like that's incredible strength and power. And it's like unrivaled truly and it's it also kind of reminded me of some of the beef i have with the word rescue that it's like somehow we as outsiders are are swooping in as heroes and and rescuing people when really it's it's the survivors who are summoning the strength and the courage in a lot of situations to to actually take steps to change their situation so I mean, the way I see it is like we in the anti-trafficking space, like the more pathways we can create, the more support services we can provide, um, the less shame and stigma and judgment we can provide in that process, the better, because it is like a thousand percent an individual survivor who has to do that work Mm -hmm. and and make and make those choices that are some really hard choices and and to say nothing of like when you have children that you're also providing for or when there are threats against your life or your loved ones like just all those other factors like it's um rescue is not an appropriate word for it at all but without rescue you know everyone else doesn't get to play the hero oh yeah i mean i see i know why we do it like running an organization in anti-trafficking it's like it's an easier donor journey or it's like a more compelling Mm -hmm. way to get people to open their checkbooks i guess it's like you know you get to be the hero in this situation and pulling on those heartstrings but it's um it's not true of the situation it's undignifying for everyone involved ultimately and um it's just not, it's not ultimately helpful. It's actually very harmful, I think, to yeah. survivors and to the actual programs that are then being created to fit that narrative. I think it's also really harmful to recidivism in more specifically, because I've actually had people, you know, it feeds into the hero mentality, the savior, the savior complex. And so when women relapse and they go back to trafficking, they go back to the commercial sex industry, whatever that may look like, people wonder, well, I gave all this money. Like, look what I did for you. Like, why would you do that? And so it's very, very shaming. It's so shaming. And I've experienced that. I've experienced Mm. that to people who are like, Hey, you know what? I paid this bill for you. Like I provided for you. Why would, why would you go back? And I wish people would realize that going back, it's the easy part. (laughs) Like, yeah, trafficking is terrible and it sucks. And being in it is the worst, but, you know, we talked about, um, how I 
recently left my trafficker again and I have experienced almost more trauma trying to leave the game than I did when I was in it. And Mm -hmm. I wish people would realize that like healing is the hard part. We don't want your money. Yeah. Your money helps. It's great. You know, that, that helps us get on our feet, but bigger than that is like the support, like letting me know, Hey, you know what? You fell back into that. That's okay. But we're here to walk with you forward. Like you don't have to go back, like providing avenues and ways to empower survivors so that that is not an option. And um, so I think um, the the whole rescue mentality really feeds Mm -hmm. into the shame and the stigma surrounding recidivism. And it's like, what would it look like if survivors were not ashamed to say, Hey, you know what? I messed up. Like I went back. I thought that's what I had to do in the moment. I felt backed into a corner. Can you help me? And instead like approach it instead of saying, Oh my God, like she went back. What can we do to empower them not to have to go back? Yeah. Yeah. And I hear you saying like the mindset shift being the biggest change there that like, yeah, not shaming, not judging and understanding that, um, it's a, it's a long journey. Sometimes it's a cycle. It's often a cycle. Um, and so understanding, I think people maybe budget for like, oh no, we've already budgeted this much for one person. And so we can't (laughs) like, I think that's actually probably where the shaming mindset comes in is like, sorry, we don't have any more funding for you. Uh, you know, survivor number 492. We we're already on these other people. Like, you know what I'm saying is like, it unfortunately goes together. I think the the way we approach funding or the way it's like it's packaged together, the funding and the care. And so once you've graduated from the care, there's no more funding for you. And so it's frustrating to everyone when you uh, have a relapse or however their mindset is, uh, is um, it's not funny, but I see you laughing. No, I was laughing because I didn't think <laughs> that money doesn't matter because you guys can't do what you do without funding. I, I, I think I'm more meant like money does matter, but that's not the only thing that matters. Let me rephrase yeah. that. Money matters, but so does everything else. Like money is so, so important. Cause again, I can't, get, I couldn't have got into this house that I'm in right now without financial support. Like money matters. But ultimately the mindset informs where the money goes and how how it going out is viewed. Yeah, I get you. We're I think, yeah, we're on the same page. I want to make sure our all of our listeners get it too. Yeah. Yeah. And also like if we're sensationalizing survivor stories and tokenizing them in that way, that is, first of all, as we we keep saying, extremely harmful. And like, I think we need donors to understand that when they are, if that's the only time that they're giving, that, that, that they're participating in this harm. And it's not sustainable um, in supporting survivors if we're only asking them to share their stories. And we have so much to learn from survivors. There's so many other things that we can employ survivors to lead in, not just sharing their stories. So it's hard when there's like, there's just so many barriers when it comes to like what survivors need, what organizations can give what they need to get funding so that they can give it and what's going to convince a donor to give funds. And there's just a lot of shame and brokenness there that is not trauma informed. And 
I, I like what Blythe said about how this recovery journey is really cyclical. Like there should be no expectation that it's going to look a certain way, that um, you would never stumble, that that you wouldn't stumble left and right and forward and backwards because it's completely new territory and there has to be super, super, super strong um, support systems all around in order to prevent revictimization. And so it's tough. And what, that the organization might stumble sometimes too. Like yeah. the individual advocates or allies involved might stumble too. Like we're not. And don't get perfect. me wrong. Like nobody is perfect. People are going to make mistakes and trafficking is so nuanced and survivor stories are so, they're all different. They're all complex. No one's going to get it 110% right every single time. But I also, like you said, it, it's it's cyclical. And with my support services being pulled because I wasn't healing the way that they thought I should. Yeah. You don't ever graduate from healing from trafficking. Like I know survivors who have been out of the game for 30 plus years. And they were like, yeah, you know, I went to therapy the other day and I uncovered a new memory that I now have to walk through a new trauma, a new, you know, whatever, constantly learning coping skills and being mindful. And it's exhausting. It is exhausting. Everybody's been through trauma. You know, I, I believe trauma is relative. You know, you drown in two feet of water and I drown in six. We're both dead. Like that, that's just how it is. And so people can relate to a certain degree that healing from trauma is exhausting. And, you know, what, it, what are the statistics? Um, survivors leave six to seven times before finally finding freedom. 80% of survivors return to the commercial sex industry. And so it's like we spout these numbers, but when we're walking with survivors through their healing journey, it doesn't reflect that. It doesn't reflect the, the like you said, the cyclical nature of trauma. And I also, also really, really like how you phrased earlier, how can we hold organizations accountable to being complex trauma informed? Because there is a really, really big difference between trauma and complex trauma. There's a really big difference between complex post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. And I don't think those are differentiated enough. And I think that differentiation, did I say that right? That differentiation needs to spill over into the services that we provide for survivors and stop expecting survivors like, hey, all right, you've been out four years. Like, why are you still struggling with this? Because there are things that I, sometimes I think I struggle more now than I did when I first left. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I think a lot of that boils down to the support. And I always tell people, you know, if you want to quote unquote, rescue people will be a lifeguard because this is not a short-term thing. Like <laughs> this is, this is a long-term walk through trauma with survivors. Yeah. That's hilarious. And I think so like on the, on target. Um, well, this has been such an important and incredible conversation. Um, to honor your time and the initial commitment you made to us, we want to kind of begin to close by asking you the question, our, our closeout question that we ask all our guests. What is one thing that you wish people knew about human trafficking? Oh, gosh, just one? <laughs> <laughs> um, Honestly, I wish people knew the grip that a trauma bond can have and the damage that's left behind. Um, And again, until you walk through that, it can be really hard to understand. 
but to put it into perspective really quick, um, it was in the 1950s. I might be butchering his name, but his name was Albert Biderman. And he was tasked with studying the interrogation techniques during the Korean War. Um, so the American prisoners of war, they were basically brainwashed and made all of these false accusations, whatever. And so he was tasked with studying how they did that. Right. And so what he came up with is what they call the Biderman's chart of coercion, I believe is what it's called. And I actually pulled it up because it was very interesting to me. So he established that there are three elements, um, at the heart of the process of brainwashing and it's dependency, debility, and dread. And so his chart outlines and explains like the coercive methods of stress manipulation. And so he outlines eight methods and um, and methods of torture that ultimately psychologically break an individual. So it's isolation, control of perceptions, humiliation or degradation, threats, demonstrating superiority and power, enforcing trivial demands, exhaustion, and occasional rewards and indulgences. What does that sound like? That sounds like initiating a trauma bond with a victim of trafficking. And so so the same methods that traffickers use are the same methods that they use in the Korean War um, to brainwash prisoners of war. And so putting that into perspective, I was kind of like shocked because I'd never heard that before. And so it was very enlightening for me as a survivor. And so I feel like, you know, if people put that into perspective, it might make a little more sense. Um, So I just, I thought that was really interesting. And I do wish, I wish people would understand a little bit more the effects of a trauma bond. And because I think that plays into so many things into recidivism, into the shame, into why survivors don't self-identify, into why they don't come forward, all these different things. So that's super powerful. Thank you for sharing that, Hannah. And actually that reminded me of another statistic I read, which maybe, you know, this one that the, I'm going to butcher it, but the level of PTSD that a survivor of, of trafficking or sexual exploitation, um, has is, um, commensurate with a, a war veteran, like a combat war veteran. Yes, certainly. I, I think it is crucial that folks understand the severity of a trauma bond. Um, I think that's a question that pops up a lot. Like if you're not chained in a basement, why are you not leaving your trafficker? Like that is this superficial understanding of what trafficking looks like in a third world country, much less the United States of America, uh, where it is happening all the time. And I think that's a topic we'll have to revisit for sure, because it, it requires a lot of depth. Um, but I appreciate you bringing it up and describing it in that way, because hopefully that's just a gut check for folks to understand like, oh, in what way would it be easy for someone to just up and leave their trafficker. Like those are some true invisible chains that people wear every day that um, someone on the outside is not going to see. Someone who is not trauma informed, they're not going to see that so readily. So I appreciate you outlining it that way. I I think that paints a a pretty strong picture of um, understanding 
like re-victimization, why someone would go back to a person that put them through that. Yeah, I think, and again, a, a conversation for another day, but then you account for the trauma in the brain and how trauma literally rewires your brain. Your brain is wired for survival. When you are in the commercial sex industry, when you're being trafficked, that's what it's wired for. Like one of the things that shocks people the most in my story is when they find out, like I lived on my own. I didn't live with my trafficker. He was active duty military, (laughs) but yet he had me under such psychological coercion. I knew even when he wasn't in town, if he said, be at this Airbnb at this time, be at this hotel at this time, I showed up. Because that's the thing about trafficking. It is consistent. It is day in and day out, getting beaten, having food deprived, um, fearing for your life. You don't get a break. You don't get a break from that. Like it, and that kind of thing, it changes you. It changes the physical structure of your brain. It changes who you are to the core and trauma bonding is responsible for that. Mm. Well, we really appreciate you sharing your insight and the pieces of your story that you've been comfortable sharing. And truly it's a gift that you would lend your lived experience and the expertise gained that I'm sure that you would rather not have gained from what you've gone through. But it, um, I've, I've learned a lot in this conversation. I know our community at large is going to really benefit from hearing from you. So I just want to say thank you so much, Hannah. No, thank you for having me. I always love being able to work with you guys. Um, you guys are amazing. And I'm so thankful that there are organizations and advocates who are willing to center survivor voices. So thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Thank you, Hannah. And I just want to say too, like we're learning <laughs> in, in this process too, alongside all the other anti-trafficking organizations. Um, and There's a shared mission for shame to be removed from the conversation, and we do our best to do that, too. Um, So I want to say that I'm leaving really empowered by the way that you talk about your agency. Like, I, it makes me feel like Hannah's such a badass. I'm only going to have badass energy around me for the rest of the day because it radiates so strongly from you. And it's just it's really meaningful to witness in detail how strong you are and how strong you know you are. And I just hope that it inspires other folks to make room for empowered survivors that want to share their voices and want to lead this movement. Uh, So thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for everything that you've taught us along the way. Can I add one thing too? I know I I told you this before, but I want to say it again. And I want the larger community to hear it too, is that I, I can't thank you enough for the the work that you undertake as a survivor, as a leader, that you have had some pretty, I mean, yeah, you've had traumatizing experiences in anti-trafficking. Like the, the people, the organizations that were supposed to provide support and care for you ended up traumatizing you in their own ways. And the fact that you are now, um, wanting to call in other organizations to do better and be better and educate the larger 
ally and advocate space is so inspiring because it's not your job. It's not your work to do. Um, you should not, yeah, you should not have to be in that position, but the fact that you want to use the bad things that have happened in a space that was supposed to be good and empowering, like that you want to help fix the system and help create a space that is actually going to empower survivors for the long haul, I think is really, really, really beautiful and really special. It's really exceptional. So thank you for engaging in that work and wanting to help the whole space be better. That means a lot. Thank you. And I don't ever want to discourage anyone from stepping into the movement. I don't ever want to you know, discount what you guys do or what anti-trafficking organizations do because there are amazing people out there. I would, I'm telling you, I would not be standing here today without my advocates, without the people who have come behind me and held me up when I couldn't stand. But this, I do want it to be a call for accountability and a call to action to do better because this is, you know, it's not a fad. It's not a trend. It's not something that comes around once a year when the Super Bowl hits. Like this is, this is my life. This is so many others, their lives. And I, you know, not, you know, we're all responsible for our choices, but I know so many survivors who went back to the game because they were not able to find support services who were not re-traumatizing and who are not re-exploitive. And so like what you do matters, what you do in this field matters. And so to, to step out and get educated and know, know, learn and know from survivors that that was more, you know, my call to action. (laughs) Oh, I hear that loud and clear. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) certainly. And I, I'm really excited for our listeners to embody that. And to go learn more and to listen to the rest of our episodes and listen to survivors and let that be the spear and let that be the guiding light for the work that they do in the anti-trafficking movement. Well, thank you again, Hannah. We love you. We're team Hannah. We're in your corner. Thank you guys. I, again, I love working with you. You guys are amazing. You do incredible work. Um, Super, super thankful to be a part. Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking, and Dressember is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dress or tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue, and it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Dressember Style Challenge, and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date. You can join the Dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org slash fundraise, or learn more at dressember.org slash how it works. And remember, it's bigger than a dress. 